So if you're not in John chapter one, go ahead and turn there. You know, that, that phrase, you are my everything, um, there's a guy in our story this morning that we, if we said that, he'd say amen to it, John the Baptist. He believes the same thing about Jesus Christ. In fact, if you remember last week, we started moving through what I called a momentous week in the life of John the Baptist, Jesus, and some other men, as we'll see in the account. And why do I say that? Well, uh, it's because of the first phrase in verse 29, the next day. The first phrase in verse 35, again, the next day. Verse 43, the following day. In other words, we're going to see seven days in a row here of events in the life of John the Baptist's ministry. Now, last week and uh, the day before the day that we're going to look at uh, today, remember John was interrogated by the Jewish religious leaders. He was uh, given a Q&A session regarding who he was, why was he baptizing, and, and ultimately they're trying to find out who is this guy, should we listen to him? And, and John made some interesting comments. No, I'm not the Christ. I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. Who are you? I'm just a voice crying in the wilderness, right? And he goes through this thing. But what's really fascinating is at the end of the conversation, John drops an absolute hand grenade that they don't pick up. He drops an absolute hand grenade that they just leave on the table. And this is what it was. In verse 27, well, let me go back. Verse 26, John answered him saying, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you whom you do not know. And that's where they should have stopped listening and said, wait a minute, wait a minute. Let me interrupt you. You're saying the Messiah is here? Where's he at, John? Point him out to us. That should have been end of conversation. I'm not asking you any more questions until you show me where the Messiah is. That should have been their response. But he says, he's among you. You don't know him. And they're like, okay, see you later. We'll go back to Jerusalem now. It's like, what are you thinking? Okay. And so the very next day, John is is evidently going to see the Lord Jesus now walking by. And and, and a couple of things have happened as we kind of work through the time frame of all the gospels. Here's what I'm telling you has already happened. John has already baptized Jesus. He's already seen what, we're, what he's going to describe in our passage today. He's already seen the Spirit of God descend on him in his baptism and remain on him. He's already seen that. And Jesus has already been 40 days in the wilderness tempted by Satan. I believe that when Jesus is coming back from that experience is probably the day that we're going to look at this morning. He sees Jesus coming back from the wilderness. And guess what? Now that John knows who Jesus is because the Father has identified him for him, he's going to point him out to everybody else. And this becomes John the Baptist's ministry going forward. In fact, you can imagine, John, this is what you lived for, John. This is what you were created for, John. This was your entire purpose for existence, John. And guess what? Today's the day. Today's the day that you get to take your finger created by your creator and point it to his solution for sin. Today's the day. You can imagine how excited John the Baptist was. This was the pinnacle of his ministry that we're going about to read about today. And so he says, the very next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him, verse 29, and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And so this is, again, immediately following that delegation of religious leaders, the very next day, he said, he's among you. They didn't ask who. The very next day, he's about to point him out for those that are around them listening. And as we're going to see, uh, that sometime in the recent past, we're going to see this. And when we jump down, in fact, look at verses 33 through 34, we're going to see that God, the Father, used a validating event to specifically point out who Jesus Christ was to John the Baptist. Now, John knew who Jesus was, but he didn't know that Jesus was the Christ. We, we, recognize, we say that jokingly sometimes, but it's probably good to repeat. We realize that Christ wasn't Jesus' last name, right? It, he's not Mr. Christ. Like Jesus Christ, Christ is a designation, a title of the Messiah. John knew Jesus. He didn't know Jesus was the Christ. And God the Father pointed that out to him in this way. Look, jump down to verse 33 and 34. We'll get there in a second. But just so you know how he knows so confidently, He says, I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the spirit 
and I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Now, again, just walking back through context, we do know that John the Baptist and Jesus were cousins, that their, their mothers were related, that, that Mary was probably his aunt, okay? And so he knew of Jesus. And in fact, what do we do in this day when we've got children of the same age in different families? What do we typically do? We, we schedule play dates, right? <laughs> That's kind of the deal. You get kids that are the same age, and especially if you get two boys, like, oh, let's get them in a room, lock the door, put some padding on the wall, and then we'll get two hours of coffee time, right? And so they're getting these, I, I guarantee they're getting together. They travel in groups. We know from history that they travel in groups going back and forth to Jerusalem for feasts. They may have even traveled together as young boys. We don't know. There's some details that we don't know. But the fact that they were aware of each other is, shouldn't be a surprise. John knew who Jesus was. He just knew that he was Jesus of Nazareth. He had not learned yet that he was the Christ. He's going to learn that at his baptism. But by, we're kind of flashing back when we get to verses 31 through 34. So John has already seen this. This baptism happened probably a, a few weeks earlier, and now he knows who Jesus is. And that's why he can say he's among you. He just wasn't there the day the religious convocation was, was there. He probably would have pointed him out that day, possibly. And so he, he goes on to say this very next day, he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Now, behold is a, is a word or a particle of exclamation. The, the idea is you're trying to call someone's attention to something. We, we might say it this way, stop what you're doing and don't miss this. Put down your phone right? Get off social media. Put it down and look. You know, the, you know with, with men back in the day, they were always reading their newspaper in the morning, right? And everyone's trying to, the kids are trying to tell them what they're doing. Wife's trying to tell them. And what would, what would the wife say sometimes? Her husband, put the newspaper down and look, right? This is the idea here. Stop what you're doing. Look. And, and, and honestly, this is the simplicity of John the Baptist's message right here. From this point forward, all he does is point his finger and say, behold the lamb, behold the lamb. That's him. Trust in him. Believe in him. This is God's solution right there. That's what he does. He just, you know, he's pointing. He's saying, behold, put it down. Trust in him alone. And you know, this, this phrase, lamb of God, is, is a phrase that would have had huge theological significance to the average Jew. We we understand that because of the Old Testament, but I don't know if we understand it in the depth that they would have understood it. You, you got to remember that at this stage, there was a temple that existed. There were hundreds of thousands of lambs slain every year. And, and the Jewish people understood what a lamb did for them as it related to sacrificial service. In fact, the lamb was slain. Why? so that I wouldn't have to be slain. The lamb took the consequence of my sin. Why? So that I wouldn't have to take the consequence of my sin. And we're going to see that the average Israelite, you know, I think we have this mindset just because we don't know the details. We have this mindset that if I was an average Israelite, I just ran down to the temple, took my lamb down and just said, here you go, priest. Yeah, take care of that for me. I'll see you, you know, next time. No, they had to personally participate in the slaughtering of the lamb. They had to put their hand on the head of the lamb. They had to cut the lamb's throat. You imagine every time you sinned, you've made this direct connection because you were the one that had to kill the animal that was dying in your place, that was paying the penalty that you deserved. You imagine the connection that would have been for the average Israelite. And by the way, sometimes we sin, you know, three times a day. Some of y'all sin more than that. But am I, some of us, sorry, wrong pronoun there. But you, you imagine going back and forth to the temple every single time and just the, the, the indelible mark that would make on your mind, seeing what was going on. He says, the lamb of God who takes away the sin, he calls Jesus a lamb. You know, there's also some other contextual connections. We're going to learn, and I won't fast forward too much, but when we get to John chapter 2, verse 13, the Passover of the Jews was at hand. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. We, some of us know the story of Passover and what that represented, right? Last plague in the nation of Egypt. 
Firstborn son was going to die unless what? You slaughtered a lamb, painted the blood on the doorpost, and then guess what? Firstborn son lives, lamb dies in the firstborn son's place. Happy evening. And the death angel would see the blood applied to the door, and he would do what? He would pass over. Why would he pass over? Because judgment had already fallen on that house. Judgment didn't need to fall on that house. And what Paul's going to tell us later in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, making this connection, I believe, from even what John the Baptist is making, is Jesus Christ is your Passover lamb. This is why the Bible says you can't be condemned when you're in Christ, because judgment's already fallen on him. There's no judgment that can fall on you. That's the good news. And so I think John is making this cultural connection to the Passover. And then we see this imagery of the Messiah being a lamb, even in the Old Testament. Our, one of our favorite passages in Isaiah 53, it says, all we like sheep have gone astray. Now that's talking about us. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is imagery of a lamb in sacrificial service, the sin being laid on the lamb. But then know what he goes on to say. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. John, I think, is making this connection here. He's driving people to understand what exactly is the Messiah going to accomplish. There's a lot of confusion in the Jewish mind of the day. What the Messiah would do, in fact, many Jews expected what? Messiah to come reign as king. That's all they saw. They're like, well, these suffering servant passages, uh, I don't really know what to do with those. Let's just put those in our back pocket. Let's focus on the kingdom. They didn't know how to put those things together. John, I believe, is making that connection. You know, one of the things that we see about the lamb, and I kind of mentioned this, is they, the, these lambs would die in the place of a guilty Israelite or a guilty Gentile who converted to Judaism. We learn from the scriptures that the lamb was to be male and without blemish. We learn from the scriptures that they would have to bring the lamb themselves, put their hand on the lamb's head and slit the throat of the lamb theirself. And, and then they would give it to the priest. The, pl- the priest would then finish it off. But imagine every sin that you committed was directly tied to the death of an animal. I think pretty clearly we would pick up the biblical principle that the wages of sin is death. And we'd see it. And after a while, you know, I'd, I'd get tired of killing animals. I'd be like, man, I should probably stop sinning so much. This is getting old. You know, my hands are bloody, blood stained. I can't get blood off of them. I'm sinning. I mean, just imagine walking around town. You can't, your hands are bloodstained. They're like, there's a big sinner right there. <laughs> Look at his hands. Can't even get the blood off. He's sinning so much, right? Leviticus 1, 4 through 5, I mentioned this. Then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord. Now, this whole passage talks about all animal sacrifices, livestock. You would see if we read the whole passage. So this is exactly what they would do with, their, with all of their animal sacrifices. Head on, uh, hand on head, my sins resting on the sin uh, on this animal. Now, is that fair? Did that animal deserve to die in the place of sinful man? No, that's not fair at all. Did that sinful man deserve to have his sins paid for by that innocent lamb? No. Not at all. He should have paid for it. That's what he deserved. This is why even in the Old Testament, you begin to see that God is always a gracious God. He is always desirous to meet his justice with his love so they can provide you and I with something we don't deserve. And in the New Testament, that's salvation. That's forgiveness of sins as we're going to see in this passage. Now, one of the things you see there, and I didn't highlight it, is you're going to say uh, that, that phrase, it says, it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. Now, one of the things that we see is the word atonement, excuse me, in the Old Testament. That was the best a Jew could hope for in the Old Testament because an atonement was simply a temporary covering of their sin, a temporary shielding of God's full and complete wrath, a temporary shielding. Temporary until when? The next sin. Temporary covering until the next sin. And so you can see the ongoing sacrifices. Do you know that one piece of furniture in the temple for the priest that has never been found, that wasn't even made, was a chair? Because the priest never sat down. They had a nation full of sinners. Their job was never done. And this is what the atonement covering provides for. Now, the good news for the Jew 
is it pointed, these sacrifices pointed one day where God would take away their sin. But that was promised in the new covenant. They were waiting for Messiah to come back and do something to provide total forgiveness. You know, forgiveness, we, we talk about it. It's a religious word, but you know what the word means? It means to separate or to release. The idea is it's removed. That's the idea behind forgiveness. And that's why when you get to the new covenant, you can jot those passages down. But that's why Jeremiah 31, 34, speaking of the new covenant, it says, for I will, future tense, forgive their iniquity, means to take it away and their sin, I will remember no more. Isaiah 36, 33, on the day that I cleanse you from all your iniquities. And so as John is using the, symbol, uh, the symbolism of the lamb is very significant. A lot of things probably racing through the minds of his readers here. But here's what's really significant. He doesn't say a lamb. He doesn't say another lamb. He doesn't say a metaphorical lamb. He doesn't say that you just have to believe hard enough to get this lamb. No, he says what? The lamb. The lamb of God. And, and here's what's unique about that. I know it's just the word the, but let me just point something out. This lamb that John is now pointing to is the only lamb in the history of Israel that could ever do what he's about to say that he did and that he can do. He's the only one. He's the unique one. He's special in that way. And don't, if you take nothing from the sermon today, take that away. Jesus Christ is special. And what Jesus Christ accomplished for you was special. No one else can do it. No one else has ever been able to do it. Him and him alone, he did it. That's the message of John the Baptist. In fact, he says what? He says, behold the Lamb of God who covers your sins. Is that what it says? No, he said, you know what? This is the one who's going to take away your sin. This is the one that the new covenant speaks about. This is the one. He's the man. He's the unique one. He is the lamb. That means there's no more after him because he's done it all. And he says, he's the lamb who takes away. Interesting phrase. It means to take up, to lift up, or to raise. It, it carried the meaning often of taking up, placing it on yourself, and removing it to another location. That's what this word means. In fact, it was used that way in Mark 2. The paralytic who was carrying his bed, who was healed, Jesus uses this same word, take your bed, and what? Go home, basically walk. And what did he do? He took up his bed, he probably put it on his shoulder, and he walked, and he took it a different place. Same, same word right here. Except Jesus is not taking his bed home. He's not taking his pillow with him on a trip. He is taking the sins of the world. And we're going to see, he uses singular, sin of the world, sins. He's going to use that in 1 John. But he's going to take the entire principle of sin and all of its consequences, and he's going to remove them. That is something that had never happened before in the history of Israel. It hasn't happened since because he's God's one solution to sin and the problem of sin. See, Jesus is the only lamb who could accomplish this, taking up the sin, bearing the sin, removing it to another position distinct from you. And by the way, if Jesus takes away your sin, that means no sin is now connected with you, and thus you can face no condemnation. You see, this is what the beauty of what Jesus Christ accomplished was. You know, not to mix metaphors, but I saw a, a, another just kind of interesting picture. You know, the Old Testament is full of these pictures of Jesus Christ and what he would accomplish, this, what we call typology. And uh, you, you'll jot this down because we're not going to be able to go there and spend any time. We just got a lot of material to cover this morning. But if you'll jot this down, Leviticus chapter 16, what you're going to see in Leviticus 16 is you've got the recording of a very interesting event that would happen every year on the high holy day of the day of atonement. Now, the day of atonement in real uh, summary fashion was when God appointed one day a year to cleanse all the sins and impurities that were not covered by all the other sacrifices. It was kind of cleanup duty, right? It was, it was also the day that if an Israelite committed a sin of omission, they didn't realize they had sinned, and they, so they never brought a sacrifice, how would they be forgiven of that sin, or how would the atonement covering apply to them? The day of atonement would take care of that. 
All right, so, so everything in place, one day a year, Day of Atonement, Leviticus 16. Here is the wild imagery that comes through in Leviticus 16. Some of you know this story. Two goats. We, we know this story? Two goats, right? They would bring two goats to the high priest. He would cast a lot. One goat would die for the sins of the people. He would be slaughtered. His blood would be sprinkled on the altar, just like any other blood sacrifice. He would die. Guess what would happen to the second goat? He was called the scapegoat, right? So we, that's where we get our word, is, is scapegoat. Little slight difference of new, meaning. What they would do with the second goat, they would kill the first one. The second one is they would symbolically put the sins of the people on this goat, and then they would take the goat to the edge of the city and shoo him out of the city. And literally what it represented is this goat died for your sins, this goat took away the sins. And guess what? Jesus did both of those roles. He accomplished both of those roles. He was not only the one who died for our sins, he is also the one, as we see in this verse, to take away our sins, just like that second goat. Jesus pictures these things. He fulfilled both roles. Now, I mentioned this earlier, but notice, uh, going back to verse 29, let's read it again. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's singular. It's not plural. It's not sins here. Now, Right across reference down, because 1 John 3, 5 does bring out that Jesus takes away the sins, plural. That's not what John the Baptist is talking about here. I believe he's talking about something even more significant, even more comprehensive than just the acts of sin. In fact, he uses the sin here, I believe, to speak of sin as a general principle with all of its consequences. In fact, when you, when you talk about what was the promised deliverer going to do in Genesis 3.15, he was going to solve the problem of sin in general. Acts of sin, paying the penalty. Source of sin, condemning the sin nature in the flesh. Providing a new body, a glorified body one day, completely free from sin. Providing a destiny completely free from sin for eternity. That's heaven. See, God can solve the problem of sin, general he can also solve all the aspects of sin that goes along with it. And so Jesus came as the promised deliverer of John 3, 3 or John, Genesis 3.15, all the way back. To do what? To take upon his back the entire problem of sin. To carry it and remove it from you so that you would never have to face the consequence of it yourself. This is what Jesus did. And we're going to see later, and this is why in John chapter 3, um, that Jesus alone is God's rescue plan. Make no mistake. It's not Jesus plus something else. Jesus is God's rescue plan. Plan A, no need for plan B. He's plan A. That's it. That's all God needed because Jesus solved the problem of sin. He took it away. And this is why we're going to see later in John chapter 3 that sin or sins cannot condemn you to hell. Let me say that again because that's hard to believe. But when you've got a savior who's dealt with the sin problem, sin doesn't send you to hell. There's one thing that sends people to hell, and that is rejection of Jesus Christ and his finished work for you. How do I know that? Well, go to John 3.18, not to, not to preach too far ahead, but look at John 3.18. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already. Why? Because he is not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. The issue is, what will you do with Jesus Christ? God says, that's my solution. Do you trust in my solution? That's the issue. Not whether or not you're gay, not whether or not you're trans, not whether or not you're a Democrat or Republican, although I know that's a big sin sometimes. <laughs> not whether or not you kill somebody, not whether or not you do this or that. Do you believe in the Savior? Do you believe that what the Savior did is enough to save you even when you're an absolute bonehead and you continue sinning? Do you believe that? God wants you to trust in him. God is satisfied, are you? That's the million-dollar question. God is satisfied with Jesus Christ. Are you? That's the million-dollar question. John the Baptist wants you to know that Jesus Christ was a lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world all of it in a general principle. Now, what we're going to do, uh, what we're going to see in this next section going forward is we're going to see that Jesus was revealed to John. Now, this needed to happen, as we're going to see, because John didn't know who the Messiah was. 
He was looking. I mean, he knew he was, that was his job, but he didn't know who he was. In verses 30 through 31, as he points out Jesus, he's going to say, this is him. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. I did not know him, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. Now, we covered some of this material earlier in verses 26 through 27 because he had just said this. And I think what he's saying is he sees Jesus walking toward him. He says, this is the guy I was talking about yesterday. This is the one I mentioned that outranks me, even though he's coming after me, which in this culture would make John a higher rank than Jesus. But he said, no, 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 he comes after me, but he outranks me. This is the one I was telling you about yesterday. That's kind of what we see here in verses 30 through 31. And it's interesting because this word, know that he, there's lots of different Greek words for know, but the word that he uses here, it means to know intuitively or to know instinctively. And this is where we gather that John didn't always know that Jesus was the Messiah. He just didn't always know. There was a day in history where God revealed who Jesus was, that he was the Christ, the Messiah. That's when John came to know this truth, but he didn't always know. Now, what's really kind of fascinating about that is maybe Elizabeth hadn't communicated, his mother Elizabeth had not communicated all the details regarding Mary and Jesus that she was aware of. Maybe she didn't tell him, John, when I was pregnant with you and Mary was pregnant with Jesus, you did some gymnastics in my womb. Remember that story? Like the baby leapt in her womb. Maybe Elizabeth didn't communicate that to John. Maybe she didn't recognize, maybe she didn't communicate what Mary had shared with her to John. Or Maybe like some sons do, maybe she did and he didn't remember. <laughs> we don't know. But at this point, he, he had not made the identification in his mind. He knew who Jesus was, but he didn't know that Jesus was the Messiah. And, and one of the things that we're going to see, it doesn't really matter. Either way, John needed this assistance from God the Father to correctly and confidently identify the Messiah. He didn't want to make any mistakes here. And so what we're going to see is that God is going to use John the Baptist's water baptism ministry as a tool to also reveal who the Messiah is. That's what he's going to use partly for his, uh, for his water baptism ministry. Now, by the way, John was anticipating the day that he would be able to point out Jesus and he was trying to prepare his disciples for that day too, because when he pointed out Jesus, what should have been their response? By John, I'm going with him. That should have been their response. And we're going to see not even John the Baptist's disciples, all of them, responded that way. It's amazing. I love what this guy has to say. I can't wait till he points out the Messiah. And when he does, I'm going to stay with him. What? That, that makes no sense. And, and we're going to see that all of his disciples should have responded the way the two do when we get down to verse 35 and following. They should have said, peace out, John, I'm going with him. That's what they should have said. And, and we see that it, it wasn't widely responded to. And by the way, this is why Paul, years later, still finds John the Baptist's disciples in Ephesus. They're still claiming to be disciples of John the Baptist. And Paul's like, don't you know the one he was talking about coming has already come? His name's Jesus Christ. And they're like, oh, well, we'll believe in him. Yeah, you could have done that earlier. Like he's already, he had already identified him, okay? And so they had kind of missed the point. And so John is now going to give testimony. Let's look at John's testimony in verses 32 through 34. And John bore witness saying, I saw, uh, I saw the spirit descending from heaven like a dove and he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see... Uh, the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, there's our, there's our word. I think it's used over 40 times in the book of John. It's this legal kind of terminology where he's giving witness. This is the primary purpose and heart of John the Baptist's ministry. It was a verbal testimony. It was a physical pointing out of the present Messiah. That was the heartbeat of his, of his ministry. And what was his testimony? Well, he's going to tell us what he saw. And, and he's giving testimony about what he saw to convince what? His listeners that what I'm saying is true 
about this man. He's going to tell them how this came about and why they can trust his testimony. So what did John see? Well, the first thing he saw was this incredible event at the baptism of Jesus. You know, he's just going through baptizing. Maybe Jesus walks down into the water. He's, he knows something is, is interesting about Jesus because he's, remember what he tells Jesus when Jesus steps in the water? He's like, you're baptizing me. I should, I should probably, I'm baptizing you. I should probably be baptized by you. You know, he, he's kind of, he's like, what are you doing here? And Jesus says, permit it. Let's fulfill all righteousness. He takes Jesus down. And then what does he see? Well, he sees a dove. He sees the, the spirit of God in the form of a dove coming down on Jesus and remaining on him. Now, why is that significant? Because that's exactly what God the Father told John he would see in order so John could correctly identify the Messiah. And that's exactly what he saw. I, I'm assuming that wasn't an everyday occurrence, right? That was a unique thing that John saw. And so what we have recorded here in this passage is really John's divine mandate and his divine expectation. His mandate was what? Baptize in water. Preach. What is, what is true righteousness? What is required of God to enter the kingdom for a Jew. It's not birth in Abraham Isaac's family. I'm sorry, guys, that's not going to work. It's not circumcision. I'm sorry, that's not going to work. It's not your best effort to keep the Mosaic law. I'm sorry, guys, that's not going to work. You need to be born again. You need a righteousness from above. You need a new birth. I think this was all part of John's message. And, and, and the solution, when you realize that, is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. The same as the solution for sin that we preach today. I think that was John's message. And guess what? Those who believed his message were water baptized. He, he would publicly identify them. But the only way they would be water baptized is because they had already believed his message. So now they were publicly identifying with his message that it was the truth. What was his divine expectation? This is why I mentioned this, I think, a couple weeks ago. Every day, John got up to go do his job, to step into the water. I bet he was thinking, is today the day? It's today the day I get to see the Messiah. It's today the day that I get to see this dove coming and descending and resting on his shoulder. It's today the day that I get to see the one prophesied about in Genesis 3.15. I, I cannot wait to get down to the river. I cannot wait to jump in that water. I cannot wait and, and this is what he's looking forward to. And so one day while baptizing, God the Father would do this for John. He would bring Jesus right to him, and he would see exactly what he's communicating and giving testimony to here. So one of the things that we see, the fact that John was baptizing in water was not only for the nation of Israel to change their mind. That was a, definitely a key component because he wanted to preach a message so they would believe on the Lord Jesus Christ about righteousness, where and how to get it, but it was also going to be the very tool that God the Father used to reveal the Messiah to John, the very tool. So within his ministry, he would now see exactly uh, who the Messiah was. God was going to make that very clear for him. And this is why John could be so confident when he begins to identify Jesus Christ for others. He provides this undeniable way for John to not miss who the Messiah was. Now, what's really interesting, and jot this cross-reference down, Luke 7, starting in verse 17, what's really interesting is later in John's life, now he's no longer in, uh, doing ministry at the river, he's in prison, right? And, and things aren't going the way that he thought they would go in terms of the timetable. Once he identified Christ, he kind of thought he would start kicking out the Romans and probably take it over at some level. And he sent, remember what he does in, in Luke 7, he sends messengers to say, did I misidentify you? Or are we still looking for someone to come after you? And what is Jesus's response? It, exactly John the apostle's response. John, here are the signs and wonders that I'm doing. These are messianic miracles that were testified in the Old Testament about the Messiah. The lame, what? walk, right? The, the mute speak, the deaf hear. I mean, these are all messianic miracles. So he's pointing him back to the word of God there and saying, I'm exactly who you, you were pointing to. But John gets a little bit confused. But the point is this event in John's life was undeniable. Never seen anything like this before. And thus he can with confidence identify that Jesus uh, is the Messiah. And so we see he would, the spirit would descend on him in visible form. Again, John would see this um, interestingly enough, the synoptics only record that Jesus saw it. But here in John's account, we see that John saw it as well. And here was the significance. Lest he think it was just some dove that flew down and 
landed on this guy's shoulder, the dove would actually remain on him. Okay, the dove would remain on his, sh- his shoulder so there'd be no mistake. And so you can see where that baptism is recorded there. But again, this was specifically pre-planned by God the Father for Jesus Christ. Now, what did he say about him? What, how did he identify him here in this section? Well, look, uh, let's go back to um, verses 33 and 34. The first thing that we're going to see is that Jesus is going to be the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. That's the first thing the first way that John identifies him. Again, we talked about this, I think it was last week. Baptism, the word itself, has nothing to do with water. We've, we, I know that is hard in the South. I mean, I, I mean maybe, it's not, maybe it's hard in the North too, but I just feel like in the South, you just talk to the average person and it's like baptism is water. Water equals baptism. It doesn't by definition. Now you can baptize somebody in water, sure, but as we're going to see, the Spirit of God baptizes you into the body of Christ, no water, right? And so the word itself, the definition of the word means to place into, to submerge in, or to identify with. Now, in the case of John the Baptist's ministry, he was baptizing them in water. What was he identifying them with when he put them under the water? His message. His message. They believed his message. They publicly identified themselves with John's message. But when those individuals believed John's message, and then they believed in the one whom he pointed out, they put their personal faith in Jesus Christ, whom John identified, then they would be baptized by the Holy Spirit, and they would be identified with Jesus Christ. And so this is the distinction, by the way, not to get too far off the beaten path because we're, uh, I want to keep tight on time this morning. But this is the distinction, if you want to read about this in Acts 19, 1 through 6. This is the distinction. John finds, or I'm sorry, Paul finds years later in the city of Ephesus, a Gentile city in Asia Minor, he finds disciples of John the Baptist who had what? Been baptized by John the Baptist. In other words, they had believed John's message. They had followed through with public identification with John's message through water baptism. But guess what? They had not believed yet. They had not believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. So they had not been baptized by the Spirit. Two distinct baptisms. One is higher than the other. And this is why we learn in the church age that those who put their faith in Jesus Christ are taken by the Spirit of God and baptized into union with Jesus Christ. Praise God, because that secures every blessing that God wants to give to you. It secures your eternal security. It shows that you'll never lose your salvation because you are now joined to the Messiah. And because Jesus lives, you will live also. All of these things come through that baptism. So much more important than John's baptism. John's baptism was a public declaration that I agree with his message. And then faith in Jesus Christ, the one coming after John, would secure spirit baptism into the body of Christ. And this is what the distinction is John is giving. He's saying, I'm just baptizing water. This one coming after me is going to baptize with the spirit. That's real baptism. Water is simply ritual baptism. There's a difference. Real baptism is what God is after, not ritual baptism. That's why there are millions of people who are spending eternity in hell and they're baptized in water. They haven't been baptized by the Spirit into the body of Christ. That happens when you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. Now, the second identification of Jesus is the Son of God. Again, John testified that Jesus was the unique Son of God, not a Son of God, but the Son of God. He uses the Greek word huios, which is indicating a full heir, not technon, not just a child. He's saying he is the full heir of God. He's the unique one. In fact, the Jewish mindset, this would put Jesus on equal footing with God the Father. In fact, if you want to see that, we'll get to John 5 one of these days, uh, but go to John 5, 18. It's going to show the Jewish mindset as they respond to Jesus claiming to be uh, the Son of God or, or, or that God is his Father. John 5, 18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him because he not only broke the Sabbath, but he but also said that God was his father, making himself equal with God. And so when John the Baptist makes this statement, he is being unambiguous. He is being as clear as he possibly can that the Messiah is deity. Now, that must have been a little weird for him growing up with Jesus of Nazareth and now recognizing that this is the Messiah, that he's fully God 
and fully man. And John now may have realized, well, that's why he wouldn't do anything wrong with me. Like, that's why he wouldn't go sin with me. The, the guy, you know, he was God. He couldn't do it. Now it makes sense. I just thought he was a goody two-shoes. No, he was just, he's just God, so he couldn't do it. You know, joking. But anyways, he, he's making this declaration of deity here, right here. And, and, and it makes sense because even John the Apostle made a pretty strong declaration of deity all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 1, right? Can't, can't mistake that one too, too much. But John the Baptist does as well. And now I want you to see verse 30, 35, because this right here became John the Baptist's life, right here. This became John the Baptist's message every time he saw Jesus Christ. In fact, it reminds me of a story of a, of a man years ago when they, when they were running boats up and down, I guess they still do that, up and down the Mississippi River, and they were transporting things, and, and a man had fallen off the boat, and he couldn't swim. And he was, he was sinking and sinking, and he Felt someone dive in after him, pulling him up, and it was his captain. His captain actually dove in and saved him and brought him back to the boat. And it made it even more impressive because this man who had fallen over was a slave. And his captain dove in after him, you know, in, in the mindset of the culture, oh, it's just a, you know, a piece of property, worthless guy. But his captain dove in after him. Well, years later, after this slave had been freed, he was working on another boat and every time his boat that he was working on passed the boat of the captain, he would point at the captain. And people were like, what, what are you pointing at? He says, every time I pass that man, I point at him because that's the one that saved my life. And that's the least I can do. And this is John's attitude now. In fact, look at, I mean, his sermons at this point become very repetitive. Very repetitive when Jesus is around. Hold on, let me stop preaching. There he is, guys. Behold the Lamb. And this is what he says in verse 35. Again, the next day, okay, again, this, this momentous week we're looking at, John stood with two of his disciples, and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold the Lamb of God. Again, next day, third day in this week that we've been looking at here in the life of John the Baptist. Also notice, just as a side note, this wasn't a large crusade. He's literally standing with two people, and, and, and it's amazing. He wasn't in a baptism service with thousands. He was, was literally standing with two people. What a great application for us. We, we, we have a problem in the church of Jesus Christ. We, have to, we think big. It's got to be big or it's not worth anything. We see a church building expanding. Or, wow, that must be really successful. Boy, they must be doing, because we think big. Big is successful. I have to do things big to be effective. And I'm just telling you, the, the testimony of the word of God is that God cares about individuals. Can you point Jesus Christ out to one person in your life? Can you point him out to two people in your life? Start there. And worry about the big crowds later. Just keep focused on sharing this message. This is what John does. He doesn't get caught up in numbers. He's not saying, oh, I better get a big uh, baptism. Uh, Jesus, stay right there. Let's get this group together so I can. No, wherever he was, right? That's the great commission. As you go, as you're going about your life, he's pointing out Jesus. So we kind of see that in the example of John the Baptist here. And again, we see that he continued to fulfill his God-ordained ministry. And this had an effect on his own ministry, wait for it, he lost numbers. That's when, that's when most people would say, I got to stop this. If, if I'm shrinking the congregation, something bad must be going on. That's not true at all. In fact, this was the entire purpose of John the Baptist's ministry. Point them the way to the way and get out of the way. That was it. Show them Jesus Christ and then realize that your ministry is going down because they're not supposed to keep following you. They're supposed to start following Jesus Christ. That's the goal of his ministry. And I would make the argument that's the goal of all of our ministries. Yeah, you know, I mean, you still want your kids when they grow up calling you every time they have to make a decision? Or do you want them to learn how to trust in the Lord in their life? That's exactly what you want. I mean, it may make you feel better. You may be like, oh, I'm important. My kids still call me. But you're actually holding them back. Cut them loose. They got to trust the Lord. They got to learn. We, we got to transition them to teach them that. Because the same Jesus that meets your needs is the same Jesus that will meet theirs. And we got to believe that. And we got to start trusting the Lord and then trusting people.
people in our lives to the Lord. And see, John the Baptist, you know, it's funny, he completely understood his role as one whose importance needed to go down and Jesus needed to go up. This is why in John 3.30, when we get there, he's going to say, I must decrease, he must increase. And you know what? I'm okay with that. John's disciples weren't okay with that. They were all bent out of shape. They're like, well, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should put in a marketing strategy. Maybe we should mail out flyers to the area. You know, maybe we should, you know, maybe we should build a bigger, you know, stage for you. You know, maybe we should try to raise the river so more people from the distance can see the river. I don't know what they were. I mean, they were just all crazy. But John knew I am not here to be in the spotlight. I am here to work the spotlight. I'm here to be behind the spotlight, pointing it at Jesus Christ. And when people start leaving me and I start shooing people to Jesus Christ, that is a net positive thing. That's the whole goal of my ministry. This is his desired outcome. In fact, we're going to see that desired outcome in verse 37. We're going to learn who these two disciples are, by the way, next week. Uh, I'll give you a hint. It's, I believe it's Andrew and our author, John. And he's rec- recounting this personal event in his life. But verse 37, then the two disciples heard him speak. Disciples of who at this point? John. John's disciples. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, said to them, what do you seek? And then he, they said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, come and see. And they came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about uh, the 10th hour. And so this was the designed and desired outcome of John's ministry, exactly what these disciples did. They heard John, they saw Jesus, they went after Jesus. That was the goal. That was the entire goal of John the Baptist's ministry. In fact, I mentioned this earlier, but Miles Stanford says, point them the way to the way and get out of the way. That is discipleship in action. That's what we're looking for in discipleship. And so we see this desired goal working out in the life of these disciples. Now, apparently they weren't following very good. None of these two guys would get hired to be in the FBI or anywhere that you'd have to actually trace somebody or follow someone. They were standing out quite a bit. Because Jesus turned, it's interesting, the word turn there, it's in the passive voice. It's, the idea is that something caused him to turn around. And you've probably felt this same thing where some, you, you feel like someone's following you or looking at you, and you kind of look back and you're right. Like you, you sensed it. This is what Jesus sensed. And he says, what do you seek? Might be rendered, what are you looking for? What are you desiring? What are you trying to find? That's interesting. Why are you following me? Why are you, what are you seeking? What are you desiring? And it's really interesting is, uh, again, it tells us they probably weren't very conspicuous. And, and I can understand why. I want to give these guys credit. Here they are growing up all their life, cannot wait for the Messiah. Somebody just told you that's him right there. I'm going to be a little jacked up too. I'm, I'm probably going to be moving quicker than I normally move too. I'm probably going to think I'm staying further back than I really am because my energy and excitement is just off the charts. My heart is pumping out of my chest thinking, could this be the man? Could this be the one? So they're excited. I want to give them uh, you know, a little bit of the benefit of the doubt. And so they, they said, what are you seeking? Jesus says, what are you seeking? They say, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, where are you staying? Now, to address Jesus as rabbi was a highly respectful term. Jesus did not uh, have any theological training. He didn't have any students following him at this point. So they address him with, with a high honor and high praise. Now, the fact that John defines rabbi for us, again, probably indicates that he's speaking. He's largely writing. John the apostle de- identify, or defines it for us is that he's speaking to a largely Gentile audience, right? A Jew would know what a rabbi is. So he kind of explains it for his audience. And now their question was really uh, just a question to get to their true question was, can we come and stay with you? That's really their question. He says, what do you seek? And they said, well, where are you staying? And the, and the question is, can I come over? <laughs> That's the deal. Can we come over? Can we hang out? Now, I love Jesus's response because he says, come and see. And then they came and stayed with him. Here's what's, here's what's fascinating. So they address him as rabbi. Jesus responds with a rabbinical saying here. Really, a, a, just a great, I, I mean, it probably doesn't surprise you, but Jesus thinks pretty quick on his feet. 
He's, he's quick-witted. Okay, so he responds with a rabbinical saying, a known rabbinical saying. This was a conventional form of invitation when a rabbi would invite somebody to learn something new, to learn something difficult, or learn something important. When, when they would actually, it's kind of like, I've got something really neat for you to come look, to look at, but you got to come with me to see it. That's kind of the idea. I got something exciting for you. Come check it out. You want to see it? <laughs> it's kind of the deal. So it's, it's, a, it's an invitation to grab their interest. I've got something really cool for you. Yeah, come with me. And so that's what this rabbinic saying uh, would do. John also uses the Greek word meno twice here. Just point that out because he's going to use it in John 15 when he translates the word abide. The idea is he's staying, remaining. The implication is they wanted to fellowship with him. That's the implication drawing out here. And then they remained with him that day. Now, we won't get into a lot of this right now, but John is going to use uh, different times of reckoning throughout his book. You try to do the best you can with the context. Sometimes it's hard, but he, you'll say that it says it was about the 10th hour. Depending on if you reckon that from Jewish reckoning or Roman reckoning, it could be 10 a.m. or 4 p.m. where they started hanging out with Jesus. Um, in, this point, in this place, I would probably take the Roman reckoning, thinking they're coming with him from 10 a.m. and they're spending the entire day with him. Here's what's fascinating, though. Um, well, here's what, here's what's fascinating, I think, is, and I meant to, yeah, I meant to show that, um, whatever they heard, whatever he showed them, whatever they talked about, it was enough to convince them that he was the Messiah. They, John said it, now they've talked to him, they're sold, because go down to verse 41. Speaking of, uh, Andrew, and he found, he first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. So whatever they talked about, they're 100% convinced now that John identified the right guy. But what's really fascinating is we'll see is although they were captivated by the person of Jesus Christ, believed he was the Messiah, it looks like they went home that day. <laughs> looks like they left. They didn't, they didn't stay with them. And so this kind of actually leads into our next story, which will start next week. And it just starts to snowball from there. And so let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for this just um, great passage today to just behold the lamb and just to take in uh, the person in the work of Jesus Christ. And we're so grateful with, uh, to you for the care that you took to reveal him uh, to John and not only that, but to John's disciples who have now, uh, one of them being John the Apostle, who has now recorded this event so that we can also see it as well. And so we're just so grateful. And we pray for each one listening that we would leave this room this morning or leave the teaching online uh, more convinced than ever that what Jesus did was enough and be persuaded that we can rely upon him, not only for eternal life, but also in our day-to-day -day life. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.